This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. And this is really, really special because very few places in the world, if any, are we seeing bears and mountain lions primarily feeding on marine food resources. And so it's up to me to figure out, is this, you know, an age-old pattern? You know, have these animals been doing this in this part of California, you know, since they arrived here thousands of years ago? Or is this something that's really brand new because they've been pushed to these extremes because of, you know, so much habitat destruction elsewhere? So it's really this, I mean, I'm geeking out about it, but I think it's a fascinating ecological set of questions. Um, and I feel so honored that I am, you know, leading the way with this research. That's Ray Wingrant. She not only cares passionately about the large and ferocious animals she studies, but she also has a passion and a talent for getting the rest of us to care about them, too. This is so interesting to me to be talking with you because you do something that I wouldn't come close to doing. You, you, study, <laughs> you study the behavior of wild animals, big, hairy, scary animals. That's true, the big, ferocious ones. Yeah, I'm not surprised at that because you're a woman. I'd be surprised at it if you were a big, hairy, scary guy as well. <laughs> How do you make sure you're safe? You know, I get that question all the time, mostly from my family members, because they're always thinking, oh, my goodness, Ray goes out with these, you know, big, ferocious animals. And, you know, I have to say, I think that uh, that for the most part, I'm safer in my career with wild animals than <laughs> than I am on a movie set. <laughs> exactly. Other people in their careers with people. You know, I think I truly believe people are way more dangerous than animals are. But with that said, it's important to, you know, respect them, give them space, always have the proper tools and protection measures. You know, there are these really important protocols. So, you know, it's a balance. I know you've spent a lot of time studying all kinds of bears, but mm -hmm. many other kinds of animals too. What, what are some of the an other animals you've worked with? Sure, yeah. So lots of bears, for sure. More than a decade of bears, but also lions, African lions for a while, um, lemurs as well in Madagascar, um, uh, you know, other primates in uh, parts of Central Africa, um, and then, you know, these days I'm getting into mountain lion work. So mm. the other lions, <laughs> not the African <laughs> lions, but the mountain lions as well. You study the movement and behavior of them. What What is there about their movement? You mean, you mean geographic movement, I take it? I do, yeah. I mean, literally the places they walk to. Um, there are always these amazing patterns that we can find. You know, I study animals that that uh, go great distances, you know, we call them like high, highly mobile species. You know, you can imagine a bear can cross a large amount of space in one day. And there's some really interesting patterns that we as scientists can uncover through tracking the movement and the behavior of 
large carnivores like bears and lions. For example, if you take a forest, a forest with bears, um, you know, one might think, oh, bears just use every square inch of this forest. But in actuality, there's going to be parts of the forest that they use a lot and spend a lot of time in, and then parts of the forest that they completely avoid altogether. Now, do you know why? Why is that? Why do they do that? Have you been able to figure that out? Sure. Well, the next step is always to ask why, you know. So the first step is to to look at the patterns in their movement and see what they are, and then to figure out why. Why is that? And with my, the work that I do, I try to figure out what levels of human activity exist in those parts of the habitat that these animals avoid. Is it that there's a you know, a, a dirt trail that runs through it where people walk with their dogs? Is it that there's, you know, a new ski resort being built in that part of the forest? Or is it just that there aren't a lot of good food resources in the trees in that forest versus another part of the, another part of the area? You know, so there's all of these different patterns and we try to figure out, well, what, you know, what is the reasoning behind it? And then there's so much we can do with that information. Sometimes we are telling developers, you know, okay, we don't want you to cut down the forest, but if you have to use some of it for development, use this part because we know that, you know, female bears with cubs aren't ever going here anyway. Um, but also it can tell us kind of the opposite, like, well, it looks like bears are using this part of the forest a whole lot and it has these characteristics. Let's find more areas like that and make them protected areas so that bears can continue to grow and thrive in these spaces. When you talked about the female bears and their cubs, I was thinking of something that I didn't know until I saw one of your YouTube uh, <laughs> presentations. Is Am I correct that the bears give birth during hibernation? Yes. Isn't that fascinating? It's amazing. Alan? Yeah. It's amazing. I, you know, I like to say these days that female bears are just superstars, like the superheroes of the animal world. They go into high, you know, their winter dens pregnant, you know, with maybe two or three cubs. And then in January, they give birth. And we have this joke in the ecology community that every bear that's ever, you know, been born ever for the history of time in North America, was born in January. That's just <laughs> when it happens. And I think that's so funny. So in January, they give birth to these little tiny cubs. I mean, the, in, compared to the size of a big, big adult bear, the cubs are about one pound. Oh, wow. And I mean, that's pretty significant. If you think about it, you know, I, I'm a mom. I'm, you know, five foot three. And so I'm a kind of small person and I've given birth to, you know, two seven pound babies and bears are much bigger than me. They give birth to these one pound little hairless, you know, blind cubs during hibernation. Now, they're not completely asleep. These mama bears aren't, you know, snoozing through the, you know, labor and delivery but they are in their like resting state where their metabolism has slowed down, you know, all of that. They give birth. It's not very painful. 
And these little cubs just start nursing from their mother and they just do nothing but nurse from her while she, you know, kind of lays around in the den for months and months and months. You know, it could be up up to six months even. And then once the timing is right, once it's springtime, once, you know, those environmental cues indicate to the mother that it's time to leave the den, she'll bring her new little litter out to see the light of day for the first time. And that's when their lives really begin. Tell me some more about your work. Do you track the movements of these animals using GPS collars? That's exactly right, Alan. You've got it. So we have these GPS devices that just hang from the the bear's collar or the lion's collar. And it gives, it sends a signal. So the GPS unit on the collar sends a signal to a satellite in outer space. And then that satellite sends a signal right back down to my computer and tells me the longitude and latitude of the animal about every three or four hours even. Mm. So we get what we call fixes, you know, GPS fix every four hours. And that can help us understand what's going on. Is the animal on the move? Are they just like going somewhere? Is the animal taking a nap and hanging out? You know, is the animal in close proximity to another animal but doesn't know it? You know, there's all these different things that we can figure out from understanding the GPS points every few hours of these large predators. You're doing a new study now that you've just begun. I think yesterday was your first chance to explore <laughs> the environment. Yes. And what struck me when I heard about it was that you're finding, I think, bears and maybe mountain lions in an un- unusual place to find them, down by the beach. Is that right? Yeah, it's absolutely right. It's really, you know, after all my years of studying bears in the American West, I never thought I would go so far west that I was actually on the coast. <laughs> and yet that's where I'm finding myself. And and you're right, Alan, yesterday, you know, because of COVID, a lot of my work has been on pause. Um, but, you know, COVID restrictions are easing up. And so yesterday was my first day at my brand new field site. And it is this coastal area, this coastal part of California. And quite literally, you know, as I was walking around, just getting a sense for the area, I found uh, black bear tracks on Mm. the beach, Mm. you know, just just fresh from that day on the beach, on the sand. Now, what are they doing at the beach, do you suppose? You know, that's that's my job. My job is to answer that question and figure it out. But I have a few guesses. So without any actual proof, I have some guesses. It appears that mountain lions and black bears at this location are actually getting food resources from the beach. And so yesterday there was a uh, a whale, a humpback whale that had washed ashore in this part of the, you know, the Pacific coast. And so it's possible that the bear could smell that whale and wanted to see if it was safe for it to get a little taste. Um, but we're finding that mountain lions are actually hunting on the coast. They're, ha- they're pulling, you know, elephant seal pups out from where they're just, you know, kind of sleeping on the sand and actually pulling them up into the oak woodland right nearby. Mm. And this is really, really special because very few places in the world, if any, are we seeing bears and mountain lions primarily feeding on marine food resources. And so it's up to me to figure out, is this, you know, an age-old pattern, you know, have these animals been doing this in this part of California, you know, since they arrived here thousands of years ago? Or is this something that's really brand new because they've been pushed to these extremes because of, you know, so much habitat destruction elsewhere? 
So it's really this, I mean, I'm geeking out about it, but I think it's a fascinating ecological set of questions. Um, and I feel so honored that I am, you know, leading the way with this research. Where did the bears come from before they got here? I'm tempted to ask if they came from the Bering Straits, but I, <laughs> but I wouldn't you know, do that. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, a lot of different ideas about, you know, black bear evolution, but essentially uh, Asiatic black bears came first and then they did come over, you know, into the Arctic and all the way down into North America. Um, and black bears have been a part of, you know, the North American landscape since before people arrived here. So they may have um, been eating seafood before they got to California. It's possible. It's possible. But there's this other twist, Alan, and that's that. You know, if you look at the state flag of California, you see that really big, beautiful grizzly bear. Mm. So actually, although black bears have been a part of the Californian landscape, you know, since they got here thousands of years ago, black bears were not a part of the landscape here in this study area. This is where grizzly bears once roamed. And so now that grizzly bears are locally extinct in California, we haven't seen a grizzly bear here in quite quite some time, over a, over a century. Um Black bears are kind of filling in their niche space. And so we know for sure that black bears were never on the coasts, feeding on the coasts before. Maybe mountain lions and maybe the grizzly bears before they were driven to extinction here, but not black bears. So in some ways, this is a very novel, you know, completely unique um, set of ecosystem dynamics that we're seeing. And I, you know, again, I'm geeking out over it. I think it's fascinating, but it also tells us a lot about the future of conservation in a state like California. California is the most biodiverse state we have in the country. And if what is happening now is working and is important, then we need to make more space for these animals to be able to do that. Do you have any idea yet why they're not sticking to their usual habitat and coming down to the beach? If their presence is unusual at the beach, why are they suddenly showing up? Sure. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. And, you know, and again, I think, to be fair, I have to say, I don't know yet, but I'm seeking those answers. Um, but one, one suggestion is perhaps, you know, the drought conditions that California faces so much, and in particular, you know, the wildfires. You know, since I started this project, you know, last year, wildfires have been at an all-time high for this part of the state. And that destroys really critical habitat for these animals, and it might push them, you know, to these extreme locations on the coast. Now, you've not only studied bears and lions in the U.S., right? You've also worked in Africa. There was a period in my life where I was studying for my master's degree, and I was doing a master's thesis, and I was studying lions. I was studying the movement and behavior of lions um, in Tanzania, and uh, I was basically just living with them. You know, I lived out of a tent for almost the entire summer, and it was just a matter of whether or not the lions wanted to come to my campsite. You know, it wasn't my choice whether or not I wanted to be around lions. It was them deciding whether or not they wanted to be around me. And I had so many interactions, you know, and a lot of them were scary. What do you you mean by interactions? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, when I was studying them, when I was actively looking for lions to track their movements, I would always be in my vehicle, you know, my field vehicle, big land cruiser bouncing around the bush. Um, 
And I was always at a very, very safe distance, you know, and I'd use my binoculars to document what the lions were doing. So I always had this distance. But when I was camping at night by myself, you know, in the in the bush, so often, you know, different different wild animals would come around my tent and I never once unzipped my tent to see what was around me. That was something I wasn't brave enough to do that. But I would absolutely, you know, hear the huffing and puffing of different animals. And, you know, one time I turned on my flashlight and it illuminated my whole tent and I could just see the outline, the shadow of this female lion just circling my tent, circling my tent, and then sticking her nose, kind of pressing her nose into, you know, the sides of my tent to see what, what is this thing? You know, what is this, what is this thing in the middle of my habitat? You know, she could smell me for sure. And it was honestly her choice not to just rip it open and eat me for dinner. Well, how, how do they distinguish between you and an antelope? Oh, easily. You know, so lions are not um, known to eat people. You know, if a, there's ever a lion hunting a person, then then there's a problem with that lion. It is not the natural uh. instinct of them. Um, not to say that you can just go f- out frolicking with lions because they can attack to kill, but they won't necessarily eat a human um, usually. And, uh, and they also, you know, they are, um, you know, instinctively they chase their prey. So, you know, a lion is much more conditioned to run after something that's also running, you know, to chase and hunt something that's running away than to rip open a tent and eat it. (laughs) That's different than bears. Bears will absolutely rip open a tent to see what's in there. But lions don't usually spend their energy doing that. It would just my luck to come across a lion that hadn't read the manual. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. And so for any listeners out there, you know, please keep your distance from wild animals all the time. Unless you're with a trained professional, it's not okay to approach animals or to think that, you know, you can touch them or whatnot. When we come back from our break, Ray Wynne Grant talks about her experience as a Black woman scientist and the importance of mentorship in her career. She also gives us a preview of a podcast of her own. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ray Wynne Grant. This particular series of Science Clear and Vivid is all women. And I'm wondering, has your experience as a woman in science, as a a woman of color in science, has it been 
friction-free or something you've had to cope with in addition to being to coping with what it, what's required to be a, a mm-hmm. top scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's not hard for me to answer. It has been extra challenging, you know, and, and that's kind of the, uh, the thing about privilege, you know. So, like, for example, white privilege doesn't mean you haven't had to work your butt off to become, you know, whoever you are. It's probably been extremely hard and it was not guaranteed. But it means that your race wasn't one of the barriers that you had to get through to be where you are. And so if you can imagine, not just for me, but any woman of color, that there's these extra barriers that are, you know, race and gender and the intersections of those. So it shows up. And I would say that these days it shows up the most in in microaggressions. You know, I can't tell you, Alan, how many times I walk into a room or, you know, I'm a professor. I walk into my classroom and people, for the first time, and people ask, you know, when is the professor showing up? Mm. Um, or I walk into meetings or lectures and people tell me that I'm in the wrong place. Um, you know, even even some of the spaces where I've worked, you know, I've had people say like, oh, this area is just for scientists, not for the public. Um, and so so those those microaggressions, add up you know if it's one every day it it adds up and it really wears at you and it's distracting you know to say the least it's distracting what do you Um, do how do you how do you manage not to have them pile up to such an extent that someone who thinks that it's an innocent thing to say doesn't mean any harm by it isn't met with a reaction from you of anger due to the fact that all of these micro problems have built up over time mm-hmm. do, you, do you do you have to make an extra effort to to not jump on the next person who does that yeah i do i do you know i once had a mentor say to me um you know microaggressions are like mosquito bites if you get a mosquito bite it's really annoying and it bothers you all day but you're not going to freak out about it necessarily but if you get one mosquito bite in the same part of your body every single day for like a hundred days in a row, at some point you are going to lose it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) at the next bite and just like freak out. And everyone around you will be like, oh, she just got a mosquito bite. What's the big deal? Why is she freaking out so much? But they don't see that every single day you've been bitten in that exact same place. And so... And so that's why, you know, it's different every day. Most days I can handle it. And most days I have my coping mechanisms and my mindfulness and, you know, the ways that I handle it. But there are some days where I can't, you know, there are some days where I, you know, have to break down, be emotional, leave work, you know, have a mental health day. And it's really frustrating because it sets me behind. You know, it is a burden that a lot of my colleagues don't have, um, you know, mental, emotional burden. But there, you know, it's all about protecting mental health as best I can, which sometimes means, you know, leaving the space um, and taking some time to collect myself. You've done a lot of mentoring, it, mentoring seems to be very important to you. It is, isn't it? It really is. You know, I I can't imagine having landed here in my role and in my career without the mentors that I had. You know, they really kept me going, kept put me on the track, kept me on the track, um, helped me tremendously along the way. And 
now I'm in a position to do that for so many people. So, you know, my research projects themselves don't usually have mentorship aspects to them. And so I engage in other programs, you know, a lot of them based at universities, in particular to mentor young women and young students of color in wildlife and conservation sciences. And it is just, it's incredibly rewarding. It's very hard work, but it is some of my favorite work that I do. And I see that, you know, myself and the other folks like me who do this mentorship work make huge impacts, just like how I have been hugely impacted by my mentors. And it is just, it is one of the most uh, wonderful things. And I'm so honored to have the opportunity to do it. You have a new uh, podcast on PBS Nature, is that right? That's right. It is coming out um, at you know in in early fall 2021. Um, it is called Going Wild with Raywin Grant. It is on PBS Nature, PBS Nature's first podcast, and it's you know it's it's a lot of stories. It's a lot of true stories from the field. So true stories about my life studying wild animals all over the world. And this first season is all of my craziest stories. Um, well, how crazy are season, your stories? <laughs> You're scaring me again. You know, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I started my career, I really found my passion for wildlife conservation when I was 20. I was 20 years old. Uh -huh. So throughout my 20s, I, I really did some, uh, like, had some risk-taking. <laughs> that was part of my personality. And, and these days, I'm, I am a lot more safe with the places I choose to work and the things I choose to do. Um, but some really great stories from all over the world, studying bears, studying lions, and, you know, living in rainforests and, you know, a lot of alone time. And, you know, the stories are great because they're a balance of, you know, interactions with wild animals and kind of the journey I've had with animals, but also a lot of the personal journey that has gone along with these trips, you know, when I've been alone for weeks on end in the wilderness and how I've changed as a person along with, you know, the growth of my science. You talked about stories that were kind of scary. Can you, can you tell me one of those stories? Or, oh, yeah. Or hinted I can, one. I don't want you to give away the whole podcast. Exactly, exactly. I don't want to give any spoilers, but yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, there's one um, that I love, and I'll just give the little teaser, but it, again, it takes place in Tanzania, a place that I spent a good amount of time. And I was doing this wonderful project studying lions, and I was working with a great nonprofit that, um, you know, where I was with a wonderful research team of all, you know, Black Tanzanian researchers. And every day we were going out into the field early morning, crack of dawn, to find a lion pride. And we would just sit in our vehicle with our notepads out and we'd write down every single thing we saw them doing. So every single behavior that we saw, we'd just write it down and document it and then go back to camp day in and day out. And it was wonderful. It sounds simple, but it was actually quite, quite wonderful. And one day, we had finished up our uh, lion field work, and we were driving back to camp, and on the radio, a call came through on the radio that said, some poachers were out and about, and everyone stay alert for poachers. And I got really, really frightened, you know, because I just wasn't sure, oh my goodness, poachers, my gosh, I, I'm worried about that. They seem violent and scary. 
what ended up happening was that we got, you know, the radio came back on. Whoever was on the radio came back on and said the poachers had been caught. And unfortunately, they had been caught too late. They had already killed a giraffe. A big, giant, adult, Maasai giraffe had been killed. And it was at that moment that the the researcher who I was with who was driving just turned the vehicle around. And I asked, where on earth are we going? And he said, we're going to the spot. They caught the poachers and they killed a giraffe. We have to go there. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, what 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 role do we have to play in this unless we're just going to sit around and, you know, and shame these guys for, you know, killing this magnificent animal. And so we arrive, and I'll never forget the scene. We arrived at the giraffe, and the poachers were there, and they were handcuffed, and we got out, and we kind of looked around, and we confirmed that the animal was dead and all of this. And this is where my story ends, because what happened to the poachers isn't much of a surprise. They got caught and they got prosecuted and really taken away. But what happened next to the giraffe is a surprise. And so I look forward to everyone hearing what happens <laughs> You're next You're not going to tell podcast. us what happened to the giraffe. <laughs> I can't. It's a big spoiler, but I think it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. Okay, um, I'll be it really changed. It really changed my understanding of, you know, the circle of life. Let me say it that way. So stay tuned. All right. That's great. <laughs> that's great. This is, that's a wonderful way to end our conversation. <laughs> we always, we always end our shows with seven quick questions. Great. Okay. Here's the first one. What was the first thing you can remember being curious about in your life? Oh. <gasps> Oh, my first memory of curiosity. My goodness. Oh, how can you start this series of questions? <laughs> you know, I, I, I will say this. I remember being very young and being very curious about earthworms. So I grew up in, you know, quite an urban environment. I, I wasn't out and about in nature very much. So when it rained, it seemed like, you know, my whole environment changed. I kind of turned upside down when it rained. Earthworms all of a sudden were all over the sidewalks. And I really enjoyed playing with them. And I, I really, I used to save them. I was a little kid and I used to save earthworms by t picking them up off the sidewalk and putting them back in the dirt. And I remember being very curious about like, well, where actually do they come from? And what do they do when it's not raining? And how come they come up during the rain? So I would say that's my first memory of being especially curious. That's great. Next question is what, what made you want to become a scientist? Ah, what made me want to become a scientist? Television made me want to become oh, a scientist. Oh, really? Like what? Yeah. I, I, again, I didn't spend much time in nature when I was growing up, but I did uh, have these occasional moments where I was able to watch TV. And what was important to my parents was that we watched, my brother and I watched educational television. And so for me, that was nature shows. That was nature shows on all of those networks, you know, and a lot of the classics, those really kind of early, you know, David Attenborough, like very, very classic nature shows. And I didn't realize that I was being introduced to science when I was watching those shows, but I knew that I wanted to be a nature show host. 
Mm. I just saw these men, you know, these British or Australian men walking through, you know, jungles and just knowing every plant and every animal and being able to describe the behaviors and what they saw. And I didn't know that that was a type of science. I knew that was a type of hosting. (laughs) And so I thought to myself, well, that's what I want to be. And I used to tell people for many, many years, I want to be a nature show host when I grow up. And so finally, when I got to college, I was able to learn that there's a field called ecology, You know, there is wildlife ecology, and I realized, oh, that's what I was seeing all those years on TV. And so that's what I want to do. And what an advantage to be a host who has advanced degrees and years of experience as a scientist. So you know know what the real story is, and you know the depth of what you're communicating. It's just great. Yeah, it's the best of both worlds. You also have a clear sense of the value of story and mm-hmm. and and transmitting your own enthusiasm it's just great mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay no, thank you. next next question what part of your research do you enjoy the most Oh, that's an easy question to answer. Finally, an easy one. I love uh, going into bear dens. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I don't think that's a thing most people can say. Taxi. But but part of my work is... doing checking on females female bears who have given birth Mm. and and just tagging their newborn cubs and so after cubs are about eight weeks old it's safe you know for us to find where a you know a female bear with a gps collar her collar will show us that she's been in the same place you know for a couple of months and so we know where her den is and we will very carefully with a small team very carefully go in sedate the female bear and then just give her and her cubs a checkup almost like they were going to you know the veterinarian we do a little field checkup heart rate you know uh weight and height um you know, looking for parasites. And then we essentially do the the easiest part of it is that we count the cubs. We count how many cubs she has. It's usually two. And the idea is that we want to find her again about six months later, you know, at the end of the summer and make sure that she still has those two cubs. Because if she does, that tells us that the survivorship rates for black bears in this ecosystem is high. And maybe it's a hundred percent. And if she doesn't still have both of her cubs, that tells us that the survivorship rate is less than 100%. And maybe there are some threats to black bears in the ecosystem that need to be fixed. Mm. And so it's complicated to actually get in there and do all the work. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is very simple. We're just counting. And yet it means it can give us tremendous amounts of information and encouragement for how we move forward. Okay, so as a scientist... What's the best moment you've ever had? (laughs) My best scientific moment. Um, You know, I would say that my best scientific moment was one of discovery. So I, a a few years ago, I was part of a a large team of people, uh, scientists from all over the world. And we entered a rainforest in Madagascar. And um, we were able to do a rapid biodiversity assessment, which means going into the rainforest and figuring out everything that's alive and naming Mm. the species Mm. that we see, plants and animals and insects and everything. Um, 
And I was able to be a part of a team that discovered some species that were not known to live in this part of Madagascar. And they were there. Some highly, highly endangered species, in particular ring-tailed lemurs, which are the largest lemurs and are critically endangered. And we found them in a place that they were not known to live. And it was a tremendous moment for me to be discovering something in science. And it really showed me that those really big, meaningful discoveries are still possible Mm -hmm. even today. Great. What was your worst moment? (laughs) My worst moment as a scientist? Well, this one is probably, you know, I think people might want me to say, you know, the time I was chased by a bear and almost died. But that's not my worst moment, actually. (laughs) There's one worse than that. (laughs) Can't wait to hear that. I think, yeah, I think my worst moment as a scientist um, came when I was finishing my doctoral dissertation. I was at the end of my doctorate, and I was really, you know, writing up my findings, and I had been in graduate school for seven years at that point, and I was at the tail end, and one of my studies basically did not find a single pattern. I was looking at bear movement and behavior and trying to find patterns, and I had all of these hypotheses of what I would find. And as it turned out, the bears I was studying had no patterns. They just went everywhere and ate everything. <laughs> and I couldn't make any, not a single claim in my paper after, you know, so many years of studying and living in the field and learning all these new statistics and, you know, just dedicating my life to it, there is actually nothing significant that I could say about that aspect of my work. And it was devastating for me. It was absolutely crushing. And luckily, that wasn't the case for my entire dissertation. There were plenty of chapters that had, a, like, I think, pretty amazing, you know, results. But this was my my first one. The first one, the first chunk of data that I analyzed yielded nothing useful. And it was pretty emotionally devastating. It must have been crushing. But that mm-hmm. that seems to be the experience mostly for scientists that things don't pan out the way they might have hoped. Yeah, yeah. And when something hits positively, it's a, it, it must make the feeling even better. That's exactly it, Alan. That's exactly it. It's You should kind of expect to not have some major findings and instead be pleasantly surprised when you do. Hmm. What gives you confidence? Oh, what gives me confidence? Um, my goodness. You know, I have to say, I I gain a lot of confidence from everyday things, you know, truly way outside of my field of study and, you know, the things that I'm known for. I get confidence when I cook a really delicious meal, you know, and I get confidence when I get my thank you notes out on time, you know, after Christmas or my birthday. I, I really, I kind of source my confidence from very mundane, everyday things, little tiny accomplishments um, are what make me feel the most secure, you know, and, you know, I get confidence when, you know, my mom comes to visit and tells me that my house is nice and clean. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, honestly, it's things like that that make me feel the best day to day. And and I'm really glad because it allows me to tap into those feelings of confidence, you know, whenever I need to. That's great. Last question. How can we help people enjoy more than they do now a love mm. of science? Mm, mm. Well, 
my answer to that is something that you are doing so comprehensively. Um, science communication. You know, I truly feel that science isn't useful unless it's communicated. And I love it when it can be communicated in a fun way, you know, in a accessible way, in an unintimidating way. I think that's how we get people to love it more, to understand that they can be a part of it. They are a part of it often. You know, it's just a normal part of life in the world. You know, I remember being a high school student and being in physics class, and I, I was getting a terrible grade in physics. I, you know, was really struggling to pass the class, but I just loved it because I remember coming home and saying to my mom and dad, you know, did you guys know there is an equation for gravity? Did you know that like people have figured out a mathematical equation to understand gravity? We just take it for granted. It's just here all around us all the time, but there's ways we can figure it out and understand it. You know, and and I didn't necessarily glean that through my textbook, you know, or through the lectures in class. I kind of got it through all the supplemental materials that I was being surrounded with that were part of the science communication in my life. And I really hope that everyone can have those, you know, kind of geeky moments where they mm -hmm. feel really impressed by something scientific. And I love it when it comes from some form of informal education. Well, that's why I'm glad to see you move so, so well, so fully into outreach. It's just oh, great. thank you. And just talking to you for this short period of time has been fun and increased my interest in black bears enormously. <laughs> Well, Alan, I am so honored to have had this experience with you. It is wonderful. You and your work and the people that you bring on the podcast are just so inspiring. And, you know, here's to more science communication. Thanks so much for being here today. It's just great. Thank you. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Ray Wynne Grant is a National Geographic Society fellow. She's just taken up a new appointment on the research faculty of the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara. Her podcast, Going Wild with Ray Wynne Grant, is produced by PBS Nature. It's scheduled to debut in the fall. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. On the next episode of Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Abby Vierig. She flies radio antennas weighing almost three tons on balloons tens of miles above the South Pole. She's hoping to spot an event she knows is very rare the moment an invisible weightless particle strikes the ice after traveling billions of light years through space. We look for neutrinos from outer space. We look for what we call astrophysical neutrinos that come from presumably sources outside our own galaxies. So I like to think about them as the perfect messenger particle. They travel 
through the universe more or less unimpeded, meaning on their way here, it's very unlikely they'll interact with something. And so that means that you can get a really clear picture about the universe that's far away. Abby Vierig, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.